Welcome to the Ridge Life Podcast. We at Pleasant Ridge Christian Fellowship trust this message will be an encouragement to you. Please join with us as we look into God's Word with Pastor Mike Bird. Good morning. I'm here to tell you a story. A story that began a long time ago. Jesus, he is the reason for the season. However, the story does not begin at the manger. Or with Mary, or even with Quirinius, the governor of Syria, whoever that is, began over a thousand years earlier with a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were two ordinary people living typical lives. They were average people, just like any of us. Yet everything changed with an extraordinary calling from God Almighty. He asked them to leave behind what was comfortable, what was normal, and set out on a journey that would continue long after they were gone and start into a future that they would not see on this earth. They received a promise from God that their offspring, through their offspring, all nations would be blessed. This is an offspring that they would never meet in their lifetime. And even though the probability was quite low from a human standpoint, Abraham, the friend of God, believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham and Sarah made room for the story of Jesus in their hearts. Whoever wrote this book is really good at getting pages mixed up. (laughs) Anyhow, Fast forward a few centuries. And the descendants of Abraham are now a million strong. They are in a land in bondage, far from the promised land. Moses, who is an Israelite by birth and a prince by right, yet he was a fugitive for murder and a very insecure person. He is chosen by God to lead the people out. Moses was typical leadership material, if you ask, well, no one ever. Moses, after some convincing, proceeded and succeeded in leading the people of God from the land of bondage to the edge of the promised land. He was given from the very hand of God the instructions for the place and the method of worship for the chosen people. And he was given the law that would paint a picture of God's mercy, love, and redemptive plan that lay ahead. Again, it lay ahead far beyond the end of Moses' life. Moses, the friend of God, 
humbly followed and obeyed God and made room for the story of Jesus in his heart. Jump ahead another century and we find Ruth, the Moabite woman. She married a Hebrew man who passed away only a short time later. Her mother-in-law, whose husband had also passed away in Moab, looked to move back to Israel. Seems that Moab was a pretty dangerous place for husbands in that time. Ruth made the decision to leave her homeland of Moab, which held the strong possibility of another husband and a successful life. Yet she chose to reject the pagan ways of her upbringing and to follow the one true God, living in obedience to His commands. Her choice was a grave risk, and yet she persisted against the strong recommendation of Naomi to stay. But she had made her choice. However, it was impossible for her to know the reward for her obedience. You see, because of Ruth's persistent obedience, she became the great, 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 great another 35 times, great grandmother of Jesus Christ. She made room in her heart for God to continue writing his story of redemption. And he set her apart for his purpose. Now we take a quantum leap forward over a thousand years. We come to a crux in the story. We arrive at the event that these individuals and hundreds and thousands of others had lived and died believing would one day come to pass. The advent of the Messiah, the Holy One, Emmanuel, in the land of Judea, two individuals, again, ordinary, garden-variety, vanilla-type people, are about to collide with the destiny of humanity. Mary, who was not married, was visited by an angel who informs her that she would become pregnant. Her response is nothing less than extraordinary. After, clarifying, after clarifying how in the world this would happen, seeing that she had never been in a situation where one could get pregnant, and she would know, she speaks one of the most humble and trusting responses in history. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. She did not hesitate to open her heart to God setting her apart for His purpose. Imagine the implications of having a child by the Holy Spirit. Imagine trying to explain that to your parents or to your fiancé for that matter. As we might expect, Joseph hears about this and makes plans to do what any upright Jewish man would have done quietly set aside the wedding plans. But the Holy Spirit intervenes. 
He gives Joseph a dream in which the angel explains what has happened and what he needs to do. Instead of waking up and writing it off as indigestion, or we might say bad pizza, his response is similar to Mary's. He got up, no questions asked, and as Matthew writes, did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Mary and Joseph were likely the subject of gossip at the local well, but that did not deter them from wholehearted obedience and trust to what, that what was told them was true. They believed God and made room in their hearts for God to write his story. Fast forward one last time. Over 2,000 years. It's the year 2019. The place, a little town in the middle of somewhere, Middlebury, Indiana. There's a little white church on County Road 22. And these six people from of old, joined by thousands of others, including David and Esther, Noah, Mary and Martha, Peter and John, Mother Teresa, St. Francis, Martin Luther. The list goes on. These all surround us as a great cloud of witnesses. They testify of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, our Savior, born in a stable, laid in a manger, killed, yet resurrected. They stand as witness to instruct you not to be like the inn, wherein there was no room for the king. They implore you to instead follow their examples of faith and trust and obedience. Today I pose the question to you that each of them in their time had to answer. And you must as well. Will you make room in your heart each day for God to write his story.
to write his story Shepherds counting sheep at night Do not fear the glory light You are precious in his sight God has come to raise the lowly Is there room in your heart? Is there going to be over here in the book of Luke, Luke chapter number one, just going along here with the same theme here that we've uh, been hearing about, about making room in your heart for Christ. Hopefully, I, I hope you got the emphasis here of what they were uh, trying to convey. And uh, as I thought about that, and what does that mean to make room in your heart for Christ? What does that mean? How do we make room in our heart for Christ? The short answer is we must believe who God says he is and come on his terms. We live in a day today, unfortunately, uh, in Christianity where we, myself included, think that we're free to go down the line picking what we like from the Bible but rejecting or at least ignoring the rest. For example, I like 
God's love, his grace, his mercy and kindness. Yes, yes, give me a large helping of that. That's what I want. But I don't care for his holiness and justice. No, thank you. And when I do that, I believe that I create an idol, a God of my own liking, but the Bible reveals God exactly as he is. Being a Christian means that I must embrace and submit to God as he has revealed himself, not to some modified version of God that is more to my liking. Now, as we're gonna read this text here in Luke chapter number one, we're gonna be instructed by a teenage Jewish girl who knew very well who God was, well beyond her years. Mary here, probably about 15 or 16 years old at the time when she spoke these words that we're gonna be looking at here, Mary, in, this, in her speaking these words, this is a praise song that she praises the Lord for what he has done in her life. And uh, Mary here singing this song in, in uh, response to Elizabeth's um, response to her uh, being with child. So Mary here is gonna be praising God for his great mercy but also for his righteous judgment. In this portion of scripture, I believe we can understand how Mary made room in her heart for Christ. And hopefully we can glean a couple things from this uh, portion of scripture as well that will help us understand how we too can make room in our heart for Christ. And that is believing who God is, who he says he is, and accepting him exactly as he says he is, not trying to modify what God says. So let's take a look here, just a couple things here very quickly. Let's look at our text here, Luke chapter one, verses 46 through 55. This is Mary's praise song that she praises. It says that Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So if you're gonna make room in your hearts, I believe it involves glorifying God for his mercy in salvation. Mary repeatedly here talks about glorifying the Lord in her song. To glorify God simply means to praise him for his attributes and his actions, for his character, for what he has done. It is to make God look good, as good as he really is. Mary's hymn here, this praise hymn that she sings, it overflows with recognition of who God is. Her praise is in God as she considers what he has done in choosing her to be the mother of the Savior. And I believe how Mary has responded by making room in her heart 
for Christ. Notice a few things here. She calls him God, my savior. Look at verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. I believe this implies that Mary knew that she was a sinner. And only sinners need a savior. If you never see yourself as a sinner, you really don't need a savior. But Mary said, this is God, my savior. And she realized that she was a sinner. The very term savior is the fact that we are lost and alienated from God because of our sin. We don't just need a little boost from God to set things right. We don't just need a few tips on how to succeed in our families or businesses. Savior is a radical term that implies that we are helplessly, hopelessly lost unless God in his mighty power intervenes to rescue us. Notice also she calls him the mighty one. Look at verse number 49. It says here, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary refers to God's power, I believe, in reference to the miracle of the virgin birth. I mean, that is just astounding that a virgin would give birth. It doesn't work that way. And he has done mighty things through Mary. Notice what else she adds here in verse 51, that he has shown strength with his arm. Referring, I believe, his, to, his, to his scattering the proud who would scoff at the nation that they needed a savior. God is mighty in mercy to the humble, but mighty in judgment toward the proud. Look at verse 49. Mary further teaches that God's name is holy. Look what she says. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His name refers to his person, the, the sum of his character, the everything that he is. And she says that his name is holy. And so to be holy means to be set apart. So God is to be held in high esteem and to be feared. But notice also what Mary praises God for. Look at verses 50 and 54. She says this, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In verse 54, she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mercy refers to God's compassion due to our misery as sinners. His mercy is on those who recognize his holiness and bow in reverence before him. And so his mercy caused him to send the Savior. Our great need was that we would be rescued from our sinfulness. And in his mercy, God did exactly that. He sent a Savior, Jesus, for us. In addition to his mercy, Mary adds, look at this, verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. God gives good things to his children. After instructing us to ask, seek, and knock in prayer, Jesus concluded in Matthew 7, 11, he says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? 
Salvation from God's judgment is the best gift of all because we're saved from our sins. We're saved from our misery. We're saved from our sinfulness. We're saved from God's judgment. And that is the best gift that could ever be given. Notice what else Mary praises God for. She praises him for to being faithful to his covenant promises. Look at verses 54 and 55. He says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This morning, we just had people playing the roles of Moses and Abraham and Ruth and Joseph and Mary. This was a promise that was given that was faithful from generation to generation. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a Redeemer. And he was faithful throughout all those generations. God had not forgotten what he had promised. He will fulfill in his time. Now, when we consider all these attributes of God that Mary was praising God for, how did she get to that point in her life of praising God? How could she know all these things about who God was? That he was holy, that he was the savior, that he is the mighty one who does great things, that he is merciful, that he is good, that he is faithful to his promises. Mary had to believe that about God. How did she know that? She knew it through the scriptures. As she read and as she heard about who God was, she believed God exactly what he said about himself. This is where I think Mary made room in her heart for God. Notice an interesting phrase here in her song in verse 47. Mary calls God my savior, my savior. It's very personal. Mary was from a Jewish home and the Jews were God's chosen people. It was just a thing. These are God's chosen people. She easily could have thought, well, we're good Jewish people. We keep the Sabbath. We follow the commandments. That's all I need, right? I got it. Hey, I'm in. But even though she was a moral young woman from a religious family, she knew that she was a sinner who needed a savior. And she had personally trusted in God and his Messiah as her savior. This is a very good point for us to consider because it's not enough to know God as your parents' savior. Christ must be your savior. It's not enough to belong to your parents' church. You must make God your own individual, personal savior. And so Christ must be your savior. That means that you see yourself as a sinner who has broken God's holy law. You stand guilty and condemned before his righteous justice. And there is nothing you can do to deliver yourself. All you can do is cast yourself on the mercy and trust in Jesus as the one who bore your penalty on the cross. And I believe when you do that, you will come to know God in Christ as your savior. When Mary made room in her heart for Christ, it became evident because she had a big view of God now 
and a very little view of herself. When we make room in our heart for Christ, we too will have a big view of God and a very little view of ourselves. Notice again what Mary says in her song as she praises God. Look at verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. She mentions here, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She mentions here that God here, look at verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The word humble means lowly. She also states that those who have received God's mercy fear him. Look at verse number 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Without exception, those who have encountered the living God are awed by the greatness, the majesty, the glory, the mercy of God. And we realize how great and awesome he is and we realize how sinful and how short we fall in his holy presence. John Calvin had this to say about God's splendor and man's shortcomings. He said, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, our foulness, our folly and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. The more we see how great God is, the more we will sense our own sinfulness, which will lead us to magnify all the more his abundant mercy toward us in Christ. By making room in her heart for Christ, notice one more thing that was a result. She was satisfied with God. Look at verse number 53 says this, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. She was satisfied with God. This I believe refers primarily to spiritual, not physical hunger. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. The prerequisite for being filled is to be hungry. And so if you're filled with your own self-righteousness, you're not spiritually hungry. If you think that you're a basically good person and that God might be a nice accessory to help you reach your goals, you're not hungry. Hungry people are desperate. They know that they will perish if they don't find food very soon. Spiritually hungry people recognize their desperate spiritual condition and cry out, save me, Lord, or I perish. And God fills such hungry souls with good things, namely with himself. And Mary says, look, I am satisfied with God. 
God is exactly what I need. God is enough for me in my life. Do you find yourself there? That God is everything that you need? That he alone is what satisfies you? Or do you run to other things to find satisfaction? If you're running to other things and not to Christ, sadly, sadly, you're missing out. And Christ alone is the only one that can bring satisfaction to your soul. Let's look at one last thing here, what Mary did, how she made room in her heart. Secondly, making room in your heart involves glorifying God's judgment. Now, if you're gonna make room in your heart for Christ, you must realize that God is a God of judgment. Now, this part of Mary's song is really out of sync with our tolerant, judge not, immoral culture. In Mary's song, she praises God for his judgment on the proud, the mighty, and the rich. Look what she says, God judges the proud. Verse number 51, Mary describes these as proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And she says, God will judge those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Pride really is a heart attitude of self-sufficiency. The proud person thinks that he doesn't need God. Pride is the original sin that brought Satan down. He appealed to Eve's pride that she could be like God, and she fell. Pride really is at the root of all of our sins. And the Bible declares, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Notice also she says that God also judges the mighty. Look at verse number 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Mary is not referring to faithful rulers who humbly serve God and their people, but to arrogant rulers who use their power for their own advancement with no regard of the people they rule. God will be glorified in bringing judgment against such powerful, self-centered rulers. And she says, God is going to judge them. But then notice this. She also says that God also will be glorified when he judges the rich. Look at verse 53. It says that the rich he has sent away empty. I believe Mary is referring to the selfishly rich those who live lavishly with no concern for the needy, but also to those who think that they are spiritually rich because of their own righteousness. When in fact they are spiritually poor, if they do not repent of their self-righteousness, they will face God in judgment. So in reality, making room in your heart for Christ is coming to terms with who God is. Yes, he's a God of mercy. Yes, he's a God of love. Yes, he's a God of grace. But he's also a God of judgment. And we have to realize this is who God says that he is. And we believe God. And we make room in our heart for God, for him to write his story. We don't pick and choose and make a God of our own liking. Now, maybe you're thinking, Mike, this doesn't sound like a warm, fuzzy Christmas message. And you're right. Shouldn't we be all gathering around the manger and singing glory to God in the highest? But I believe from the lips of Mary herself, she glorifies God for his mercy in sending the savior for all who will humbly receive him. 
but also she glorifies God for his judgment on those who proudly reject him. And so if we wanna have room in our hearts for Christ, then we're going to have to believe God for exactly who he says he is and believe what he says about himself. So it's my prayer that if you've never been born again, that if you never repented of your sins, that you've never received his mercy and grace, that you will come to terms for who God says that he is and trust in him for the only hope of your salvation. Then you too, I believe with Mary and countless others could praise God for his mercy and his judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you so much for your word and I thank you for this reminder, just even in Mary's song, just her, her praise that she has towards you and praising you for what uh, you had done in her life. And Lord, we have the witnesses, the testimony of people through generations that have believed you. And just as it was said of Abraham, that he believed you and it was counted to him as righteousness. And God, that's what you require of us. You require us to believe what you say and trust you. And so Father, I do pray that you just work and move in all of our hearts, that we would come to grips of exactly who you say that you are and that we would enlarge and open our hearts for you to allow you to write your own story in our lives. I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your love. I thank you so much for the, for the love that was shown towards us through your son Christ and him bleeding and dying for our sins. But God, I also thank you that you are a God of judgment. I thank you that you are a righteous judge. I thank you that there is no partiality in you whatsoever and you change not. And I praise you for that. You are a perfect God. And we thank you that we get to worship you and that you are our father and that we can come to you through your son, Jesus. For those here that do not know Christ, Lord, I pray that you move upon their hearts, help them to see their lost condition, convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment to come and may they repent and believe the gospel. And we ask all this in the name of Christ, amen. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.